podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. boys and girls two-footed podcast on tuesday the 15th of march brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider a virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location access things you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe liberty shield is the number one rated vpn on trust pilot five star ratings across the board and if you go to libertyshield.com and use the code ROUTER50, you will get your router half price. That's libertyshield.com, ROUTER50 for a half price. Router, 50% off. You can't do better than that. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had one game in the Premier League last night. Crystal Palace nil, Manchester City nil. Big, big result at the top end of the table. City dropping points, meaning that they're now only four points clear of Liverpool. Liverpool have a game in hand, which they'll play tomorrow night against Arsenal. A win there, and the pressure is really on Manchester City. And we will see what this City team are really made of. Obviously, you go back to 1819, very tight title race between the two teams. I happen to think that that City team was a lot better than this City team. I think they were built better for a title race than this one. And I think the mentality was stronger in that one than it is in this one. You look at the players that have gone since then, you look at the leadership, and I've talked about this before, you look about the leadership that has left Manchester City in recent years, and I think it is quite important to point out Vincent Company, a born leader, massively important. Sergio Aguero, a player who led by example and would turn up with big goals at big time, big times, and David Silva. Maybe not the most vocal of players, but certainly one that could turn a big game, create something in a pinch and get you across the line. Match winners like those two and Leroy Sané no longer there. Raheem Sterling, to me, is not the same level of player as he was then. I think they miss those players. I think they miss them massively. And I said before, if you look at what happened with City, they lost Zabaleta, Yaya, Company, Aguero, and Silva. Basically, I think it was consecutive summers. That's a lot of leadership to lose, and you didn't really add any pure leaders. Now, you can point at Ruben Diaz, and I'll accept it, but he is very young, and that's one player. 
Who else has joined City that you would put down as a leader? Riyad Mahrez is not. Jack Grealish might have worn an armband at Aston Villa, but he's not a leader. He'd just be a fella going for a walk and nobody following him. City lack leadership, and I think they might lack a little bit of mental toughness as well. We see very often with City, if they go behind, they struggle in games. If they can't break teams down, they start to get quite panicky and they start to bicker with each other. And last night we saw that City players bickering with each other on the, on the pitch. And I thought Guardiola just had a bizarre outing last night. Didn't make a single substitution. Jack Grealish and Riyad Mahrez were basically in the pockets of Nathaniel Klein and Tyreek Mitchell for the whole game. Phil Foden was a non-issue. Anderson and Guehi dealt brilliantly with him. Bernardo Silva had a very poor game, especially by his standards. I thought De Bruyne had a pretty good game. I thought he was the only City player, really, of the front six that could say that. Rodri, I believe, committed seven fouls and somehow didn't get booked. I'll need an explanation on that one. How is it that City committed 11 fouls in that game and only got one booking, that for Jack Grealish? Rodri committed seven of them and didn't get booked. Yet Palace, Palace had three players booked, only committed six fouls in the game. Edward was booked for his first foul. It was a very strange refereeing performance. City, as you'd expect, had the vast majority of the balls, 74%. They had the most shots, 18 to 7. They had four on target. Palace only had one. But you felt like Palace were the more threatening team. When Palace countered, City looked all over the place. Walker didn't look right. Stones is never comfortable when he's facing his own goal. Laporte has never been the same since the knee injury. And again, doesn't cope all that well with physicality. Canseo just isn't a defensive player. He's a, he's a tremendous footballer. A tremendous footballer. But he's not a defensive player. He plays as a defender just to get him on the pitch. But he's a midfielder for all intents and purposes. He plays in midfield. He plays like a midfielder. He's outstanding on the ball. Off the ball, defensively, no. No, no, no. Uh, Michael Elise had him on toast a couple of times. And Elise himself just continues to stand out. What an absolutely phenomenal player. Eight million pounds Palace paid for him. Now, there's some rumours going around that he's got a 35 million pound buyout. If that's true, he may not be at Palace next season because I would imagine there'll be a host of top clubs sniffing around on Michael Elise. He is a tremendous young player, only 20 years of age and just turned 20 as well in December. Um, he bounced around in his youth career a little bit. He was at Chelsea, he was at City. Then he went to Reading and he had five years at Reading, but he has been phenomenally good for Palace this season. As a creative outlet, his set-piece delivery is excellent. He is such a good player and he can play a multitude of positions as well. Can play on the right in the front three, can play on the right in a 4-4-2, can play as a 10, can play as one of twin 10s in a box midfield. I think in certain situations, certain teams, he could play as an eight for Liverpool, for City. 
I think he could play as an eight. For City, definitely. For Liverpool, it'd be the right side of eight role. But he is he's such a good player. Such a good player. And he was great last night. Another one who was great last night and is making a big name for themselves this season, Conor Gallagher. I mean, this guy has to have five or six loans, not just two like the rest of us, not just three like a freak. This guy's got five or six of them. Never, ever, ever stops moving, stops running, stops pressing and harrying and hounding players. And his development over the past 18 months has been tremendous. He was impressive at Swansea. He was very impressive at West Brom, even though he walked into a lost cause. And this season, he's been absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He reminds me a little bit of Dejan Stankovic, especially early Stankovic, like Lazio era, that constant ball of energy. He's got a little bit of a tour of Vidal in him, doesn't have the nastiness of, of Vidal, which was something that made Vidal great. But that really aggressive style, wanting to press from the front, but almost being like a defensive attacking midfielder. You know, like the first line of defence who just goes to win the ball back and hassles and harries. And he did it endlessly last night. I've said it before, if Palace had managed to get Tino Livermento, that might be the best young right side anywhere in Europe. Now, Klein was excellent last night. There's no, no disrespect to him, but Livermento's on a different level. Gallagher, I don't know if they'll be able to keep him. Chelsea might want to keep him. Who knows what happens with him? But he's he's outstanding, and Elise is just is really special. Uh, Mateta led the line fairly well. Doesn't link play the way you'd want, but did a very good job at hassling the City centre-backs and making them earn the money. Coyate in midfield has had a great season. It's been overlooked by many, but he's had a great season. Last season, he played centre-back and was really, really good. Before that, he was a box-to-box midfielder, but he's now adapted into this holding role. And last night, I thought he was absolutely outstanding in terms of shielding the defence, winning the ball, drawing fouls, killing the game. A very, very good performance. Jeff Schlupp, he's another one that's been converted. I mean, he's playing as the left side of a three. He was a left-back, left-winger when they bought him, but he's adapted well to this role. He's a very valuable player in that team. Zaha had a bit of a quiet night, but I'm I'm really enjoying this iteration of Zaha. I think he's starting to mature as a player and realising he doesn't have to do it all himself and he's become more of a team player. And He was really, really good. And the two centre-backs both played very well. And Gaeta didn't have a whole bunch to do that was difficult. Spilled one, one shot from De Bruyne. Obviously, City hit the post as well from Canseo. The save he made from Mares was exceptional whether it was by intent or by instinct i don't know it was an outstanding save uh palace fully deserving of their point last night they are 11th in the league now one point out of the top half one point behind southampton they're unbeaten in four with nine games left to go i i think there's a chance they will get top half and that would be a huge achievement for them they've got newcastle away Arsenal at home, Leicester away, Everton away, Leeds at home, Southampton away, Watford at home, Villa away and United at home. 
And there's no reason for them to fear any of those teams. They will obviously lose some of those games because that's just the life of a mid-table team. But they won't fear any of them. They're still in the FA Cup. They play Everton at home on Sunday. And I think they'll fancy themselves to win that one. I genuinely think they'll fancy themselves to win that game and advance to the semi-finals of the FA Cup. And that would be an incredible achievement for them. They can marry a top-half finish with an FA Cup semi-final or even potentially a final if things go their way. What a first season for Vieira. What a, what a standard to set for yourself. Uh, City will be disappointed, obviously, but they're still top. They are still four points clear. Liverpool do have a game in hand, but they have to win that game in hand. City have the points on the board. Uh, looking ahead at what City have left, they've got Brighton at home, Burnley away, Liverpool at home, Wolves away. That's a very difficult game, especially given how Wolves played against City earlier this season. Watford at home, Leeds away, Newcastle home, West Ham away. Very, very interesting game. The Hammers have been very good at home this season. They've beaten a couple of the bigger clubs this season. So West Ham will be confident enough that they can cause City some trouble. And then Aston Villa on the last day, we'll wait and see what that, what that leads to. It might be that it's just a coronation for City. It might well be that the title is out of City's hands at that point. If Wolves, Liverpool and West Ham take points off them, or, or two of the three. Um, and obviously they're still going well in the FA Cup. They're advanced in the Champions League. So they're competing on three fronts. And it would be no surprise to see them end up with some silverware. They're still the favourites for the league title, but that's a difficult running. That is a difficult running. That's three very awkward games. Liverpool home, Wolves away, West Ham away. They're not easy at all. And you can definitely see City dropping more points between now and the end of the season. It will just come down to whether or not Liverpool can capitalise. Moving on, we have two games in the Champions League tonight. Manchester United at home to Atletico Madrid. United coming off a big win at the weekend, beating Spurs. Atleti beat Celta Vigo, beat Real Betis and beat Cadiz in their last three. So they have found form again. That's four league wins on the spin for them. They beat Osasuna before the first leg. They've won all three since. That's a big improvement on what they had been putting for that 1-0 defeat to Levante, which was an absolute shambles. This will be a difficult game for them, though, travelling to England to play United in front of a full crowd. But Atleti are the type of team that are maybe more suited to playing away from home, happy to sit in, invite you on and then counter you to death rather than, you know, at home where there might be more of an expectation to them to go and play. Um, Won't be easy. Won't be easy for either team, obviously. United going into this game, having gotten the best performance of the season from Cristiano or his best performance, I should say. Um, They'll be hopeful he can repeat that. He's got history against Atletico Madrid. He scored some big goals against them in the Champions League and obviously in the Liga for years. Uh, Luke Shaw is a doubt. Mason Greenwood obviously out, but United should be at full strength. It should be a good game. That one is an 8pm kickoff, as is Ajax versus Benfica. And I'm going to watch that one because I think that's the more interesting game. 2-2 from the first leg. Ajax going obviously very well 
in the Eredivisie. They are top of the Eredivisie and two points clear of PSV Eindhoven. They've won their last two games, won four of their last five. PSV have won the last five in a row, though, so they have closed the gap. Obviously, Ajax had a brilliant group stage, won all six of their games against Sporting, Dortmund and Besiktas to be one of the three teams that uh, advanced with a perfect record from the group stage, along with Liverpool and Bayern Munich. A little bit of a disappointing result, I think, in the first leg for them. They would have expected to go and beat Benfica, but Benfica are no pushover. They really aren't. They came through a group with Barcelona, Bayern Munich. You're not getting through that group without being pretty decent. And Ajax were a little bit fortunate in that group. They did that that game. They did go one up and then two one up. So it was Benfica coming back against them, but Benfica had some big chances that they missed in that game. And they'll expect that in this one, they'll be able to create chances as, as well, away from home against Ajax. So the disappointment, disappointing result at the weekend, uh, 1-1 draw with Vasella, where Adel Trapped was sent off on eight minutes and they had to play 82 minutes plus stoppage time with 10 men. Uh, they did match them, though. In fairness, they should be whooping Vasella. They're not very good, but um, they did perform fairly well. Darwin Nunes is in a little bit of a slump where they could really do with him recapturing some of his better form and getting some goals. The last goals he got, he got two against Vittoria, but that's two in, I'm thinking, six games for him which is a little bit of a slump uh, based on what he had been doing. But Darwin Nunes, definitely the danger man in that Benfica team, a player I think will be playing in the Premier League next season because there's a number of clubs interested. And with the season, he's having 25 goals in 32 games, uh, 20 and 22 in the league. He is tearing apart that Portuguese league, proving he is too good for it. And we see the likes of Bruno Fernandes and Luis Diaz come to the Premier League from that league and just carry on as if it was the same level. I think we'll see more and more clubs start to look towards players that are really exploding in Portugal. So that's the one I'm going to watch. They're both 8pm kickoffs, United at home to Atletico Madrid, Ajax at home to Benfica. Both should be good. Both should be fun. And then obviously there's a lot of football this week. We've got Champions League tomorrow. We've got Premier League tomorrow. We've got Europa League to come this week as well. Um, I believe there are Europa League games. Let me see. Uh, No, all Europa League games, I think, are Thursday this week. Yeah, they are. All seven Europa League games will be Thursday this week. You've got the Conference League also Thursday. So a lot of football to be played this week. So should be fun. I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I've got a whole bunch of listeners' questions that I didn't get to last week, and I'm a bit worried about not getting to them on Thursday. So I'm going to try and get through as many of them as as many of them as I can today, and then I'll leave whatever's not done till till Thursday. Uh, so we'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, uh, listeners' questions. Right, let's start with this one. Alex Sapopo, question for the pod. Would Karim Benzema and Robert Lewandowski continue to enjoy their 30s? Which do you think would have fared better in the Premier League? 
which clubs could they have could you have seen them in and are there any other players of that ilk you would have liked to see in the Prem I would have loved to have seen prime Cavani and prime Higuain in the Premier League now we did get Higuain obviously for a while but that was after he'd gone to Juventus and put on the weight and wasn't really the same player. If we could have got him off the back of his time at Real Madrid when he went to Napoli, I think he would have done really well in the Premier League. Um, Cavani, I think, would have been sensational in the Premier League if he'd come over early. I think Zlatan would have absolutely dominated the Premier League if he'd spent his best years there from, say, 23 to 31, 32 I think Zlatan would be considered one of the top four or five best ever Premier League players. I wish we'd seen more of Suarez. Uh, That's obviously partly a selfish thing because he was at Liverpool. But I still think Suarez, 2012-13, he was the best player in the league. He should have won player player of the year. He was robbed and it was given to Bale because he bit Ivanovic. Uh, The season he had in 13-14, he was the unanimous player of the year. That remains the best individual season I've ever seen anyone have in the Premier League. When you consider what he did then going to Barcelona, uh, the first season he's part of the team that wins the treble, obviously misses the first bit of the season because of the suspension, but when he came back, he was on fire. And then the following season, I want to say he got 59 goals and 24 assists. I did read this earlier. I want to say 59 and 24 and 15-16. That... That's one of the all-time great number nine seasons. Maybe the best ever that anybody's had. And I will say this, and I, I think there's a lot of people that will agree with this, even if they won't say it. From 2013 to 2017, Luis Suarez was the second best player on the planet behind Messi. He was better than Cristiano in those years. Cristiano's more favorably looked at because Real went and won those Champions Leagues. But as an individual player, Suarez was a level above. I think Suarez is probably the third best number nine of all time after the real Ronaldo and Marco van Basten. Some might argue that, you know, Gerd Muller and, and others belong in that list. And, and that's absolutely fine, but I'll go with Suarez. I think he's disrespected. Because of some of his behaviour, he like he should have won the Ballon d'Or in 15-16. There's no question. He was the best player on the planet that year. In fact, I would even say that from 2013, from January 13 till May 14, he was the best player in the world. He was better than Messi in that 18 months. And I think he was better than Messi in 15-16 as well. Messi was better than him in 14-15, in large part because Suarez missed a chunk of time and obviously had recovered from a knee injury as well that took a bit of time to heal. But I would say Suarez could make a real case that over that four-year span, he was the best player in the world. He was robbed of a Ballon d'Or because of the fact that he'd bitten three people, uh, Ivanovic, Cialini, and obviously I can't remember who the guy was that he bit when he was <laughs> at Ajax. But I said when he left Liverpool, he won't bite anyone else. There'll be far less behavioural issues now with Suarez. And the reason I knew that was, and it's turned out to be true, there's been absolutely no behavioural issues with Luis Suarez since. Think of when Suarez bit those people. 
Ajax, he was under massive pressure as the best player there. He also wanted to leave. He'd had enough. He knew he was ready to go on. He was by far the best player in the league. But he was having to do everything. He was the guy in that team. At Liverpool, the same. The pressure on him to carry that team was excessive. And then with Uruguay, again, at a World Cup, massive pressure and expectation. At Barca, he didn't have that because he had Messi. The expectations on Messi, no matter who Messi's playing with. Look at PSG this year. Guys playing with Mbappe and Neymar. He's 34, 35 years of age. And yet all the pressure is still on Messi because that's what happens when you're the best player of the generation. Obviously, the other thing with Suarez is the, the Patrice Everett incident. We're not going to relitigate that. There's a lot of questionable stuff that went on at that time. The investigation itself was questionable, but it found what it found, and that's just how it was. Um, and obviously, that is a black mark against Suarez's name uh, as well. So those are the reasons Suarez hasn't been seen. So yeah, though prime Suarez, I would have liked to see more of. As for the initial part of the question, uh, sorry, the second part of the question, Benzema would have been phenomenal in the Premier League. Uh, this Man City team, and in fact, all the Man City teams under Guardiola, would have been the club for him. He'd have been ridiculous in all of them. Uh, he'd also work, I think, quite well in this Arsenal team. He would have worked very well in the Liverpool team. Lewandowski, again, I think that City team, different type of player to Benzema, but more similar to Aguero in some ways. I think he would have been great for that team. Uh, I could have seen him play for United with Bruno behind him. I think that would have worked very, very well. And as this Arsenal team develops and we see more of Odegaard, the playmaker, Smith Rowe, playmaker and goal scorer, Saka, playmaker and goal scorer, and then Mark Nelly, sort of that second striker type breaking in from wide. Again, Lewandowski fits like a glove, but the fit for Lewandowski would have been Chelsea. You look at some of the teams they had over the years with uh, with Hazard, with Willian, with Pedro. I think all of them moving off um, Lewandowski. If you look at how he was at Dortmund with, with Royce as that sort of goal-scoring second forward, which so Pedro was, and then those playmakers behind him, such as Hazard, he had Mario Gotze, and Willian, he had Kagawa. You look at how he's been at Bayern with... Thomas Muller with Serge Gnabry, et cetera, et cetera. I think Chelsea would have been the club for him, certainly over the kind of second spell of Mourinho in the Conte years. I think Lewandowski would have torn the league apart. Uh, so hope that answers that one. Um, AMK, oh, oh, sorry, AMK2889. <clears throat> Every time I watch Virgil, play I can't help but picture him having a successful career in the NBA he may be a terrible basketball player for all I know I don't know if he's any good but I do know he loves the sport but I can see him time and again uh, posterizing some poor soul or coming out of nowhere with a ridiculous block and then just giving that sarcastic smirk that he gave Kepa in the League Cup final he just seems like an all-round athlete and could be a dominant power forward <laughs> so I think Virgil, he's 6'4", he's so he'd be short for power forward, obviously. But pa, pa, uh, Charles Barkley was 6'4", so that's not necessarily ruling out. But 
I think Virgil would be a, a small forward. I think he'd be more of a wing. I think he'd be a lockdown defender, the likes of Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, um, like a smaller Giannis kind of thing, a freak athlete, great defensively, high IQ. I think he could have been like a smaller Giannis, a Kawhi type of player. Um, second part of this question, do you think there are any um, other American coaches, any American coaches and managers that could be successful managing in Europe? I, I don't know is the honest answer because it, this, the, the style and the level is just so different. It's very, very hard. Like we've seen, obviously, the likes of Bob Bradley come across. He's a very good coach. And it just didn't really work from a lot of the time in Europe. Jesse Marsh was in the Red Bull system for a long time. So he'd been kind of Europeanized. I genuinely don't know is the answer to that. Um, KOR99, a question for Thursday's pod. In your opinion, who are the best managers of all time from the following countries? England. Uh, I would say Bob Paisley with a very, very large doff of the cap to Brian Clough. France, I would say Wenger. Germany. Maybe not, maybe not the best. But I, I love Bertie Vogts, but... It has to be Hitzfeld, doesn't it? it? It has to be Otmar Hitzfeld. It just does. Two European Cups, back-to-back titles at Dortmund, won everything at Bayern across two spells. It's got to be Otmar Hitzfeld. It just does. So I'll go him, but I, I love Bertie Vokes because of that 90, uh, 96 team, which, to be fair, he borrowed a lot tactically from Otmar Hitzfeld. So, yeah, I'll go Hitzfeld. Uh, but I will say, Kloppo is closing. Kloppo is closing the gap. Uh, Portugal is Mourinho. Holland, I mean, you can go Cruyff. You can go Rennes Mikkels. I'd probably go Cruyff. I'll, I'll go Cruyff. Uh, Spain, Vincente del Bosca. How do you, how do you argue with the CV? Two Champions Leagues, World Cup, European Championships. I think it's Vincente del Bosque. Uh, Argentina, I think Bilardi. Brazil. Brazil is tough. Brazil is really tough. Um... Let me think. I mean, it's hard not to go one of the World Cup winners. So, Carlos Alberto Pereira has got to be in the conversation. But you look back beyond him, and there's a bunch of guys that made quantum leaps with the game. You know, you look after him, you've got Mario Zagallo, who's a great manager as well. I will say it's not Luis Felipe Scolari, the most un-Brazilian of managers. I'll go Pereira. I, I, 
he's he managed him a couple of times. Um, he won a World Cup. I'll go with him. I'll go with him. He, he had a bit of a, a weird club career uh, as a manager. He also managed everybody. I mean, he was United Arab Emirates manager twice. He was Q8 manager, managed Saudi Arabia. Wherever the paycheck was coming from, this man was going. He managed Ghana back in the 60s. Um, I'll, I'll go with him. I will go with him. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with, we'll go with him. Uh, so that's that. Uh, Franzi, uh, just listen to Daily Pod. I have to say, I understand your take. Can't understand any other take. I also go as far as say losing the hundred percent record. Oh, this is about something I said on the Daily Red. So that's fine. Thank you very much. Uh, Tiberius Sports Ball. What are your thoughts on the player fouled needing to take a penalty? Similar to the NBA, if handballed, then the team shooting would get to pick the player. I like that. I genuinely do like that. I think if a player had to take the penalty, I think we might see less diving in the penalty box. Now, VAR has obviously helped big time with the diving. But I think it would also get a little bit strategic. You'd get maybe teams committing fouls on certain players if they were under a little bit of pressure in their box picking the guy that they think might be weakest. I, I like that. I do like the idea of if you're fouled, you have to take it. Now, the other thing is you get players that get fouled and then claim they're injured because just to get out of taking it, but you'd, you'd know they were a bottle job straight away. Um, Liverpool analyze a bunch of metrics from scouting players, and we all know that they look at personality as well. So we don't get a disruptive player. And they all seem like genuinely great people outside of the game. Are there any questionable personality players that you would sign that would be worth the risk or is it too much of a distraction? Uh, I would sign Bernardo Silva and Bruno Fernandes. Um, Now, they might only be questionable personalities if you're a rival fan. Because Bruno didn't really have many issues when he was at Sporting. He's always been a moaner. He's always whinged at referees. But... Jamie Carragher spent a career whinging at referees. Uh, so did Gary Neville. So I, I don't really mind that. John Terry moaned at referees endlessly as well. Bruno's a little bit temperamental, but I do think he's frustrated at United as well. Bernardo, I think if he's your player, you'd probably love him. And if he's anyone else's player, you'd hate him. Because I think he's just one that enjoys the needle. But I'd sign both of them, but I don't know if they qualify really. Or if that's just as a rival fan, you look at them and think, oh, he's a bit of a, a bit of a dick. Um, outside of that, no. I, I learned my lesson on the Mario Balotelli thing. So, like, I wouldn't sign Pogba, for example, because um, I just think there's just too many question marks there. So, uh, no, I wouldn't. I, I like what Liverpool do. I've, I've long liked the idea of clubs looking into that side of things as well uh, it's something that has been done in u.s sports for by the well-run organizations for a number of years now there's always one that slips through the gaps i mean no organization in any sport does more background look than the new england patriots and yet they still ended up with aaron hernandez on the team so it, it's not always flawless um, but I remember hearing stories about when the Chicago Bulls were trading to get Dennis Rodman. <clears throat> they did so on the condition that they could sit down and meet Rodman first. 
And they spent like two days interviewing him and talking to him and having other people talk to him. And then they sat down and said, well, what was everybody's? Because, you know, it's one thing if the coach or the general manager are sitting down with him, but when the kit guy is sitting down with him and having a chat, when the video analyst is sitting down with him and having a chat, some of the guard can drop and they might see some question marks, some red flags. So that's always been something that stuck in my head that, you know, going that in depth on acquiring players is something you probably should do. And Liverpool have seen the benefits of it without doubt. Uh, Isaac Gilding, what are one or two things PSG need to change to stop being embarrassed in the Champions League? The first thing they need to do is rid themselves of Leonardo because he's dreadful. Uh, And to be quite honest, the second thing they need to do is overhaul the squad. The problem PSG have is that they've got too many mercenaries at the club. Too many players are just there for the paycheck. And it starts at the top with Neymar. He's only there for the paycheck. Mbappe, I genuinely believe, joined PSG because he wanted to play for PSG. Neymar joined PSG for the money and the part-time schedule. So that was the big mistake they made when they started this sort of second stage of their rise to European dominance or what they hope to be European dominance. I think they've, you know, signing Neymar ultimately cost them Christopher and Kunku. You know? And I mean, there's a world in which PSG have a front three right now of Moussa Diaby currently playing very, very well for Bayer Leverkusen, Mbappe and Nkunku. Three young, talented French lads with real affinity for the club and a real tie to what it means to play for PSG. So, you know, that's sort of where I am with that. I think if we look at, you know, Nkunku is from Paris. Uh, Mbappe is from Paris. I think these players would care more about, um, and Diaby's from Paris as well, these players would care more about the club, about the brand. I think they'd give a lot more effort. I think you'd see them play an awful lot more as well. Whereas, you know, with Mbappe, we don't we don't have any doubts. But with Neymar, you watch him play and all of a sudden he's just not there when they need him. And that's that's a big question mark. You know, we look at some of the players that came through the PSG Academy in recent years. Tangai Nzonzi, who's at, or Nianzu, I think Nianzu's his surname. He's at uh, Bayern Munich now. Hugely talented centre-back, but didn't make the grade for whatever reason. Yassine Adli, wonderful attacking player at Bordeaux. Stanley and Saki's a solid enough defender. He'd be a good squad player to have. You know, uh, the kid that's at Nottingham Forest, um, he's not making much of a go at Forest, but so I think it's certainly he's a good player. Like, there's just so many. Adel Ayushi, he's. Uh, these players come through a PSG and immediately are looking to get out because they know. There's no pathway to the first team for them. And all of them, 
would improve PSG's squad. Jonathan Acone is another one. Now at Fiorentina was at Lille for a couple of years. Timothy Weah, yeah, he's been questionable, but he's a decent player. Arthur Zagre is another. You go up and down the list of players that come through that academy, and you just wonder why more prominence wasn't put on developing those players into the first team, on finding a pathway for them. It's not a new thing. I mean, PSG's best academy players have been leaving since the mid-90s. Nicholas and Elke left to go to Arsenal, you know. Uh, you go back to the sort of mid 2000s. Well, you had Paul or not Paul, Paul B. Kingsley Coleman uh, in the early 2000s left to go to Juve because didn't see a pathway. And that's been a major problem with them. So that's one of the things I would do. I'd overhaul the squad. I'd put far more emphasis on bringing through young players from the academy. I would be going out this summer and I would be re-signing in Kunku and Diab. I wouldn't care what it costs. I just I get them to bring them back because I think I think and I think if you sold Mbappe on being the guy in a team of young, exciting, hungry French players with obviously the odd new signing topped up, but as long as it's a Marquinhos and a Verratti, guys that you're bringing in who will give their careers to the club, I think that's fine. When it's guys that are only there for the paycheck, like Draxler. I just don't think that works. I, I think I think when you look at PSG's squad, that's about as bad a squad as you could put together with the money that they spent. Like, there's holes everywhere, either in the starting 11 or in terms of depth. Now, I, you know, I love the signing of Hakimi. I love the signing of Nuno Mendes. I'd be keeping those. But President Kimbembe hasn't developed, and you might keep him as a depth centre-back, but... He's been disappointing. Sergio Ramos, get him out the club. Uh, Paredes, I like as a player, but I, I don't know that I want him in my starting eleven. Icardi, gone. Di Maria, I love, but gone. Juan Bernat, gone. Danilo Pereira, gone. Dagba, you keep as a back a backup to Hakimi for sure. Uh, Wijnaldum, he only joined for the money. He basically admitted that himself. Gone. And I love Ginny, but gone. Uh, Kurzawa, solid enough backup. That's okay. Uh, Ander Herrera, there for the money, gone. Abdu Diallo, I can do better. He's a good player, but he's not what I need. So gone. Draxler, gone. Career, gone. Adrissa Gay, squad player, fine. Messi, gone. Javi Simmons, like this is the next big talent from the academy. <coughs> He will leave if he doesn't have a pathway. He will leave if there's no pathway to the first team for him. They've tried to give him some games this year. I think he's played six or seven times. But they've got to be able to get these players, especially the high-level prospects, into that first team. You know, the first one to go would obviously be Neymar, and then you start just trimming the fat everywhere, getting rid of all the bloated contracts, and you start building a young, hungry team with Mbappe as your focal point, you sell him on this project, you look, give us three years and we will prove to you this is where you need to be. And we will make Paris the centre of the footballing world with you right at the core of it, surrounded by the very best French players. And that means building a wall around 
the French League. That means no more Camavinga getting picked off to go to Real. That means no more Canate and Upamecano ending up at Leipzig. That means we grab them early, we bring them in. Maxence Lacroix the same. If they're that level of talent, we bring them here. We develop them, we get them into our team, and we're the ones that are going to have the very best of French players. Same with Wesley Fafana, William Saliba, whoever. The very best ones, we get them here. That's what you need to do because otherwise they're always going to be the team where players go to get rich. Um, Simple as that. Uh, Do you think Mo will go on a ridiculous run soon? We've seen him become frustrated and then take it out in the opposition before. It looked like he wanted to murder the goalpost the other night. I do. I do think we'll see Salah go on, on another big run before the end of the season. I genuinely do. Um, A83. couple of late questions for the Thursday pod. Oh, well, these are, this was for last Thursday. How concerned are you with the lack of goals in the recent Chelsea, West Ham and Inter matches? Obviously, the quality of opposition must be taken into account. But Mane, Jota and Mo have seemed a little bit off or at least out of sync. Yeah, I do agree with that. Mane looked better, I will say, against Brighton, but had had a couple of rough outings. Jota still doesn't look right after the ankle problem. Salah, to me, just looks exhausted. He genuinely does just look exhausted. Um, I, I think it'll come good. I think we go through spells like this. But Diaz has certainly picked up a lot of the burden in terms of carrying the ball, being progressive. Um, Salah not having to beat three players to get the ball into the penalty area, that kind of thing. So I think it's going to be okay. But look, Chelsea are a defensive first team. West Ham, very, very well organized. And Inter have one of the best back lines in Europe. So they're three teams that are always going to be difficult to break down. Uh, Sophie's choice question here. If you had to choose one, who would you rather extend, Klopp or Salah? Assuming the deal to keep either runs through 26. I would go Klopp. Because I think Klopp is the Klopp has a bigger impact, not just on the time he's here, but the time afterwards. Klopp can set the team up to still be successful for three, four years after he goes. Klopp will attract players in that time. Salah will only really affect the club while he's at the club. And I don't think he affects things as much as Klopp, to be quite honest. And I love Mo. I'm the biggest proponent of giving Mo whatever he wants on a four-year deal. And then if he's still up for it, give him two more years and have him break Ian Rush's record. I think it's doable. I think he's the only guy that's going to have a chance of doing it. I would give Salah whatever he wants, but if it comes to one or the other, it's got to be Klopp. It's got to be Klopp. Like, just think of where Liverpool were when Klopp took over to where they are now. It has been continuous progression. Obviously, last <clears throat> last season was a big step back because of the injuries, but it was purely because of the injuries, and we, we've seen the evidence of that. It, it has to be. It has to be Salah. It has to be Klopp. <laughs> it has to be Klopp. Uh, fact: nineteen seventy-seven. How will the Chelsea freeze affect the academy and its players? So my hope is that Chelsea will put more of um, more of a priority on getting young players, similar to what I've just said about PSG, more of a priority of getting young players 
into the academy. And I've, I've been through this, or into the first team, rather. I've been through this already. Listen to this 11. Now, there's no starting goalkeeper. You'd have to go and buy one of them. But a back three of Reese James, Fakayo Tamore, and Mark Way, I think that can be special. Lamptey and Livermento as the wingbacks. Gallagher and Rice in midfield. Mount behind Abraham and Broya. And you've got Solanke, Hudson-Odoi, Loftus-Cheek, Harvey Vale, Tino Andron, both Chalabas, Billy Gilmore, Ola Aina, Jamal Musiala, Andreas Christensen, uh, Levi Colwell, and Etheridge, the, the keeper, who was a Cardiff for years, them not even in the team. Now, you can argue that Christensen can be in the team, and that's fine. You can argue that Musiala can be in the team, and that's absolutely fine. But the point of it is that barring a starting caliber goalkeeper, there is unquestionably a top six, potentially top four squad that in the Premier League or other major European leagues under the age of, I think, I think Chalaba, the older Chalaba, Nathaniel, I think he's 27 and he's the oldest of that group. Oh, well, Etheridge would be the oldest probably. He's probably 30 at this point, but either way, you know, you can buy a couple of goalkeepers. Chelsea are producing a top four squad across a seven, eight year spell. And the ones they've produced more recently, so take Chalaba out, maybe take, no, actually just take Chalaba out and go with the rest because the rest are 25 and under. So that's in the last six years or so. All of them have broken through and that's sensational. That's what I'm hopeful hopeful for that we'll see. Um, AMK2889, in your honest opinion, what is going on with Neymar? Do you think it's just typical Brazilian life? A lifestyle in which he wants to party and have group gatherings are seen as more important than play uh, playing. Could it be psychological stuff in it? Maybe it doesn't. He doesn't even know what he wants and maybe feels pressured to succeed. No, I just think he. I think he's just money orientated. I, I don't think he cares much about football. I, I genuinely don't. I don't think he cares about the game anymore. I sure he loves. He loves playing, as in. He enjoys having a kick about, but I don't think I don't think he cares at this point whether he wins or loses. You know, I think he's made so much money. He's been so focused on the brand of Neymar for years and years. He's always been money motivated. And that's not a knock because the guy grew up in abject poverty. And oftentimes, you know, when you give someone who has nothing, everything, this is what happens. You see it all the time in US sports. So, you know, it's not a knock against what well, it is a knock against him, but I mean, he's just, he's the biggest disappointment in football. That's what it is. And at this point with the injuries he's had, he's now 30 and he doesn't have the motivation anymore. Like the thing is when Neymar was young, he had something to play for. And that was to lift him, his family, his friends and generations of them out of generational poverty. Now he, what he's done is he's created generational wealth. He doesn't have that carrot anymore. You see it in all walks of sports. You see it in boxing. Oftentimes you get certain fighters. They look incredible when they're young because they're motivated to get out of whatever circumstance they've, they've grown up in. Then all of a sudden they get that big, big paycheck. And all of a sudden they're not as motivated anymore. What was the guy's name that beat 
Anthony Joshua. Was it Ruiz? The big chubby guy? And then he came back to fight the second time and he's about six stone heavier. Like, you know, uh, Tyson Fury is another example. You know, came from nothing, all of a sudden had everything. Went off the rails. But took him a long time to get back on them. He did get back on them, which is the biggest credit to Fury. But when someone has nothing and gets everything, how they react is is anybody's guess. Because you can't answer it yourself without having been presented with everything. And most people listening to this will be lucky enough that they haven't had to grow up in the abject poverty. But, you know, I know that I've got a lot of listeners in certain parts of Africa where poverty is prevalent. And only they can really answer what it's like to have very little. Now, you, you obviously have your family and you have things that you value, but if someone all of a sudden put two million quid into your pocket, would that change you? I know it will probably change me. And I didn't grow up in poverty. You know, I grew up in a working class family, but we always had what we needed. We always had the roof over our head. We always had the lights on. There was always food in the fridge. But if you grow up without those things, and all of a sudden your life changes, now you can have anything you want. Absolutely anything you want. There's no such thing as no in the world you live in now. I think you look at Conor McGregor. This is a guy that grew up with very little. And look what kind of a jackass he's become now that he has all the money. He was always a bit of a jackass to begin with. But now he's a rich jackass. And you hear about what he's done. You read about certain things that he's alleged to have done. And you have to ask question marks of whether it was a good thing for him to get money or not. Because these people aren't used to, you know, to the word no. Simple as that. Um, Okay, Steve P. Surely one for the pod here. Which five players in their peak in this list would you put in the current Liverpool squad and why you can make it more challenging by saying you can only spend, say, 10 million? Alternatively, pick a side from them and choose a goalie from any era. Any era. Isn't it funny the distribution of the buying and selling clothes compared to today? So what is this? This is... Every single Premier League transfer in 1994 that cost more than one million, who was the biggest bargain? Wow. Okay. Chris Sutton to Blackburn for five million. Uh, we're not taking him at Liverpool. Duncan Ferguson to Everton for four million. Definitely not taking him. Uh, Phil Babb to Liverpool, 3.6. No, thank you. John Scales, 3.5 million. I stand by John Scales. Was very, very good. He just couldn't settle in the north, but he was a tremendous player. Uh, Daniel Amakachi to Everton for three million. No, thank you. Jika Papescu from PSV Eindhoven to Tottenham for 2.9 million, rather. I will take him, definitely, as a backup six or as a starting centre-back. Or, I mean, look, the guy was just, he's one of the best, holding midfielder slash sweeper centre-backs ever. Massively underrated. I'll take Jika Popescu at 2.9 million. Uh, don't know if he starts for Liverpool, but certainly into the match day squad. Gives valuable cover to a multitude of positions. Carlton Palmer, 2.8 million, Sheffield Wednesday to Leeds. A figure of fun, a better player than people remember. But never an England international. How he is more caps than Leticia, I don't know. 
Uh, Darren Peacock, QPR to Newcastle. Solid centre-back, dodgy ponytail. Not one for me, but a decent player. Uh, Philippe Albert, Anderlecht, Newcastle. Tremendous ball-playing centre-back. Questionable defensively, but a good player. Ili Dumitrescu, Stoyab Bucharest to Tottenham Hotspur. Very good creative midfielder. Found the pace and physicality of the Premier League at that time. Too much for him. Good player, I wouldn't take him. Brian Roy, Foggia to Nottingham Forest. I'd absolutely take him. Back up to Salah. Left-footed, pacey, goal-scoring wide player. Great partnership with Collymore. I'll take him. So that's two. Uh, you said I had 10 million for five. That's two for 5.4. So I'm happy enough where I am so far. <clears throat> uh, Paul Kitson from Derby to Newcastle. Obviously went on to play for West Ham as well. Um, good player, good penalty box poacher, but wouldn't be my type of forward. Rule Fox, uh, Norwich to Newcastle. A player I did like. Pacey, unpredictable wide player. A bit like kind of Sean Wright Phillips, if people might remember him a bit better. A bit like that kind of small Aaron Lennon type, that, that kind of small nippy winger. Uh, Paul Furlong, Watford to Chelsea. Decent player. Not good enough to play for a top club. Uh, Chelsea weren't a top club at the time, so that was fine. Uh, Vinny Samways, Tottenham to Everton. I was never a fan of Samways, a bit of a clogger. Uh, Dion Dublin, Manchester United to Coventry. Had gone to United, I think, from Cambridge, broke his leg, and somehow United made double the money. But a good player, good up front, good at centre-back. Yeah, Dion Dublin was a good player. Uh, wouldn't take him to Liverpool, though. Jurgen Klinsmann, Monaco to Tottenham, two million. This was one of the first big global stars to come into the Premier League. And it was so exciting when he arrived. And, you know, he had a real quirky personality. And that summer, Tottenham really swung for the fences. Off the back of that 94 World Cup where Romania were sort of the big surprise. And Petrescu... Uh, Petrescu Dan Petrescu, sorry, went to Sheffield uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Gika Papescu went to Tottenham. Dumitrescu went to Tottenham. There was this kind of influx of the top Romanian players. The, the wages were great for them, and the clubs that were selling them were happy to make the money. But um, Tottenham swung for the fences with Papescu, Dumitrescu, and Klinsman. Really, really went hard at it and tried to pair them in a front five with Darren Anderton and... Uh, Nicky Barmby. And unfortunately, and Teddy Sheringham obviously was the third one. Unfortunately, that meant Gika Popescu was asked to play as a holding midfielder with no help, none at all, because they went Klinsman and then sort of Sheringham and Barmby behind them. Anderton was a winger. Dimitrescu wanted to play more centrally and kept getting forced into wide areas. You probably could make it work. If you swapped out, say, Barmby or Dumitrescu for a more traditional centre midfielder to play next to Popescu, I've gone off topic, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Stefan Schwartz, Benfica to Arsenal. Good ball-playing left-footed midfielder. A, a very granite jacket like better than jacket, but similar style. Wouldn't be one for me. Anders Limpar, Arsenal to Everton. Always liked Limpar. Two-footed winger was one of the very early inverted wingers, right-footed, played left side. 
Um, 1.6 million. He was probably towards the tail end of his career. That would they have signed? They signed Kinchelskis, I think, the next summer. So that would have been quite a fun wing pairing. Um, Steve Froggett, Aston Villa to Wolves. Talented young player, never quite became what he was meant to, had a lot of injuries. Ian Nolan, Tranmere to Sheffield Wednesday. I have to say, I don't really remember Ian Nolan. Don Hutchinson, Liverpool to West Ham. A talented young player. West Ham was more suiting of his, of his abilities. Um, Nicky Summerby, son of Mike Summerby, making the move to Man City, following his dad's footsteps from Swindon. Had looked good in that first Premier League season for Swindon. A hard-working right-sided winger, very like his dad. Not a top-level player. David May, Blackburn to Manchester United. Always felt like United only did that just to annoy Blackburn. But um, May was a solid enough squad defender. John Fashnew, Wimbledon to Villa. John Fashnew and his elbows, Wimbledon to Villa. Uh, Fashnew would not be my type of player. Tony Daly to Wolves from Villa. Magnificently gifted winger, incredible pace. The hamstrings of a small child, though, just couldn't stay fit. Could not stay fit. Just his body couldn't cope with it. Um, Dan Petrescu, I would take him as the backup to Trent. Uh, Genoa to was it not Foggy. I thought it was Foggy to no, it was Genoa. Yeah, yeah, because Brian Roy was Genoa. Was Foggy rather? Uh, Dan Petrescu, I will take for one point three million. Uh, Mark Draper, Notts County to Leicester. I really like Mark Draper. He went on to play for Villa a couple of years later. Really good ball-playing midfielder. Uh, I think I'd be inclined to take him at Liverpool as well. Uh, so that's my fourth. Uh, David Rocky, Rollcastle. What a player. What a player. Not for the knee injury. He's probably one of the greatest English players of all time. How he has so few caps, I don't know. Incredible talent. Um, Peter Beergree, just a kind of run-of-the-mill chalk on the boots winger. Had a little bit of talent, had some skill, could had a trick. Good cross through the ball, uh, wouldn't be for me. Bruce Dyer, I have to say I'm drawing a blank on. Don Goodman was a fairly run-of-the-mill centre-forward. I assume he went to Wolves to partner Steve Bull or replace Steve Bull around that time, but he wouldn't be for me. Joey Beauchamp, Oxford to West Ham. Not a clue. Don't remember him at all. Neil Cox, Paul Rangey right-back, could play a bit of centre-back, probably ideally a, a right-side centre-back in a three. Uh, decent player, wouldn't be for me. Went from Villa to Borough that year. Uh, Neil Emblen, Millwall to Wolves. Wolves would have been in the first division of the time, the second division, of the, the second league. And they're signing two million pound players. Actually, they've signed four. Wolves weren't. Wolves didn't put that year, did they? Maybe they did. 94-95. Transfers in. Daly, Froggett, Goodman, Amblin, John DeWolf. Now they were they were what's now the championship. And they spent a ton of money. And then they ended up losing in the playoffs. Graham Taylor was there. That's probably why they spent the money. Taylor had taken over late the previous season. 
they'd gone all in on trying to get promoted and they spent a bunch of money and it didn't work for them. Um, that's disappointing. Uh, Steve Bull, David Kelly and Don, David, Don Goodman was a flop. Uh, David Kelly, Irish striker, very good player. And Steve Bull up front. Uh, Froggett, a lot of injuries by the looks of things. Daly, Daly didn't play at all. Now, I don't know when he signed because it doesn't tell me. Uh, Tony Daly, they all signed in the summer. Tony Daly didn't play at all. That must have been the hamstrings tearing up on him. Uh, solid enough in defence. Dean Richards, early Dean Richards. People don't remember how good Dean Richards was uh, from Bradford to Wolves. Had a horrendous knee injury. Really good player. Passed away, unfortunately, in 2011. Just He was a really, really good centre-back. Really good centre-back. Went on to play for Spurs late in his career. What a shame. What a shame. Dean, Dean Richards was a, a very, very good footballer. Very good centre-back. Massively underrated. Um, Neil Lamptey and John Moncur are the last two. I like John Moncur. Good dictating, playmaking midfielder, but wouldn't be for us. Neil Lamptey, I would, I would gamble on. Because Neil Lamptey, if you remember, was like the big up-and-coming star at that time. He'd been at Anderlecht. He'd impressed everybody. He'd had the loan spell at PSV. They were saying, you know, he, this guy could be the next big thing. And unfortunately, went to Villa. And his career just sort of, I mean, put it this way. He went a year at Villa, a year at Coventry, a year at Venezia, alone at Boca Juniors, alone at, no, he went to Boca Juniors permanently. Um, went on loan to Union Santa Fe, a year with some Turkish club that I won't try and pronounce, a year with Union Luria in Portugal. He joins Gruta Fert in 1999. So between leaving Anderlecht on loan for PSV, he doesn't spend more than 12 months at a club for seven years. And in that time, plays for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight clubs. He spends two years at Gutterfurt. And then he goes a year with Shangdong Luang, who are in China. Uh, Azar Nasir Dubai, a year. Uh, a year with Asante Kotoko, who are in Ghana. And a year with, sorry, two years with Jumo Cosmo. So he has a long career. Plays for everybody, but only spent more than... He spent five years at Andalek, but one of them was on loan. Sorry, four years with Andalek, one of them on loan at PSV. And then he spent two years with Gutefurt and Juno Cosmos, and that's it. That's the career. I would gamble on Neil Lamptey at Liverpool under Klopp with the player development we have. He was meant to be the next big thing. I'll take a risk. That's a million quid. So. I've got Pepescu, Roy, Petrescu, uh, Draper, and Lamptey. That's the five I'll take. And that comes to 6.9, sorry, no, what am I saying? 8.95 million. So, yeah, that's that one. 
Uh, hope that answers that question for you, Steve. And I do have one more that I need to get to. Uh, and apologies on this one. This I should have answered two weeks ago, but completely forgot. Uh, right, last question then is from Jim. So uh, I want to throw a query your way. Given that I believe Kane is on his own, very ordinary at best, is it possible to find out how many of his goals have come from Sun assists? I know that when Sun is not available, much of Kane's time is spent fouling or pretending to be hurt. Uh, I, I do kind of agree with this. I, I think Kane is a very good goal scorer and he is creative, but I don't think you can win major honours if Kane is your best or even second best player. So I think Son is Tottenham's best player. I think when Tottenham were at their best, Son and Eriksson were the two best players and Kane was the third best. That's no bad thing. But Spurs won nothing. Now, Harry Kane could join Man City in the summer and win league titles, but that wouldn't make him any better of a player. It might just change the perception of Harry Kane because now he's won something. You know, you look at Alan Shearer's career and he won one league title and that's it. And he had all those years of being the best player at Newcastle, et cetera, et cetera. Shearer was a better player than Kane, but he still didn't win major honours. And I think, you know, if Kane went to Manchester United, for example, I don't think he wins major honours. I don't think Harry Kane is the difference between what United are now and winning a title. Funnily enough, I think if you put him in the Arsenal team, I think he makes them a more legitimate contender than he would Man United. But uh, in terms of Kane and Son, uh, they have combined for 37 goals. So they have assisted each other for 37 goals. That's the most in Premier League history, one ahead of Drogba and Lampard. Of those, uh, 19 have been Son setting up Kane and 18 have been Kane setting up Son. The ones where Kane sets up Son tend to be he drops off and clips it in behind and Son runs on and scores. The ones where Son sets Kane up tend to have a lot more hard graft by Son and Kane getting a tap in. Um I do think you could potentially win the title with that front two if you put the right team behind them. Spurs have just failed to do that. I think you'd need a very special defence. I think you'd need a quality midfield and you'd need, obviously, a new goalkeeper, new right-back, things like that. Um, There's things Kane does brilliantly. Like some of his passing when he drops deep into midfield and turns and picks a ball. Some of it is is De Bruyne-esque, but it's not a consistent thing with him. You know, in and around the penalty area, he can be lethal, but a lot of it is... A lot of it also comes down to effort. Like, Kane, to be fair to him, ran himself into the ground for a couple of years, played through injuries... But you have to ask, was he playing through injuries for the good of himself or the good of the team? Because when he played in that Champions League final, it seemed like a very selfish decision where he clearly wasn't anywhere near fit. Now, Pochettino, we remember, did not fly home with the team after the game. And there were rumours that Pochettino didn't want to play Kane in the final. He wanted him off the bench 
so that he'd have him in the late stages if he needed him. But he didn't want to start him, and he was pressed into starting him because Kane went over his head to Daniel Levy, which strikes me as a very selfish thing to do. And we saw Kane's behaviour in the summer. We saw his behaviour at the start of the season. We've seen how he's been this season, which is very, very selfish and all about himself. And there is definitely a theatrical nature to his game. He's definitely one of the worst divers in the Premier League and has been for many years. He's quite egotistical for a guy that's won nothing. He might be the type of guy who will score you a ton of goals, maybe win you a League Cup, maybe an FA Cup, but never be good enough to lift you to win a Premier League title or a Champions League. You know, one of those guys that gets his gaudy numbers, gets a ton of goals, ton of assists in a bad team. Good, good numbers, bad team. Look at last season. Led the league in goals and assists and Spurs finished mid-table. And that might just be what Harry Kane is. I do think he can be elevated with better players around him, more young men's sons. You know, if, they, if Kulisevsky can develop into that level of player, if they can get one more in midfield, a new right wing back, two new centre-backs to go with Romero and a new goalkeeper. But that's five more players and the hope that Kulisevsky develops into that player. You know, if Kane was... If you put if you put Benzema or Lewandowski into that team, that's a top four team, as is. So that's my worry with Kane or my, my concern with Kane is that I don't know that he's necessarily a winning player. You know, when, when the chips are down and the big games come up, we've seen Kane not perform in a lot of big games. He didn't play well at the weekend against United in a big game, which was bizarre because he put in one of the best performances he put in his life against City. So there's no consistency there in those big games for him. I think that's that's what holds him back from being a great Premier League player to being a, just a great player on a global scale. Um, he'll probably end up as the all-time Premier League record, hold, record holder for goals. He'll probably end up as England's all-time record scorer. But he, he would just be what he is. And if he goes to City and wins a title, I think it just changes perception. It doesn't actually elevate him as a player. It changes how certain people will view him. In the same way, if City win the title this season, some people will will view Jack Grealish more favourably than they did beforehand. But I still don't know that Jack Grealish is a winning footballer. I'm yet to see evidence that he is. City won a title last season without him. Pep has won three there without him. Jack Grealish is the 10th or 11th best player at City. I think Kane would be the 5th or 6th best player at City. I think Bernardo, Gundogan, De Bruyne, Mares, and Sterling are all better players than him. I think you could argue Mares, but I think the others are all better players than him. I think Canseo's a better player than him. So, yeah, I think th- th- to answer the question, 19 of, of Kane's goals have come from uh, Son. I think that's the most. Uh, the, the combined number is the most, obviously. Um, this is when playing together. They've obviously they've scored 160, 161 goals now. 
playing together, 100 of them for Kane, 61 for Son. Uh, Son has assisted 19. But remember, Kane also had Ericsson for years. He had, he had Ali for years. Like when Ali was great, and Ali was great for a couple of years, Ericsson was great for a couple of years. That front four was special. They really should have won something. Even if it was just a couple of domestic cups, they should have won something. And they didn't. And I think a lot of that does have to fall at the feet of Harry Kane because while, yeah, you look at the raw goal numbers and say, wow, that's really impressive. When you dig into them and you see who he's scoring against, you see the patches where he doesn't score, then he gets a burst of goals. He can be streaky. You know, we've seen Kane a number of seasons, didn't score till October, by which point Spurs were out of any chance of winning the title. Because to win a title, you really have to play at a high level from like, like September on. You can get away with a ropey October, August. You'll get away with one ropey month. You can't get away with two ropey months to win a title in this league. And unfortunately for, for Spurs, they've had a couple of times where Kane just hasn't really turned up till October. Um, I like Harry Kane as a player. I wouldn't want him at Liverpool, personally. Um, but I do re- I do remain resolute in my opinion that Youngman Son is the better of the two players. I think he's the most underrated, underappreciated player in the league, Youngman Son. I think if you put him in the Liverpool team over the past five years, in, instead of either Firmino or Mane, there's no drop-off. There might even be improvement. I, I, I would have him over Sadio Mane, bar one season of the last five. 1920, Mane was the best player in the league. Every other season, I think Son's been better than Mane. As a as an all-round player, not just goals, as an all-round player. I, I and I would take Son over Firmino as well. So that's just me though. Um that is that then. I hope that answers everyone's questions. If I haven't got them, I'm really sorry. I think that's everybody. I've been through everything that I can can see there. Uh I don't think there's any that I've missed. Oh, I do have one. Sorry. Sorry, I do have one. Um Stephen Smith asked this question last week for those who don't know Stephen make sure you're following him on social media and reading his work he's a brilliant writer Uh, with Chelsea getting sanctions who would you take off them Um, there are a few there are a few so I love Kai Havertz and have done for years I would take Kai Havertz to play as a false nine in this Liverpool team I think he'd be sensational uh, you would take Mason Mount. I think Mason Mount is a right-sided eight in this Liverpool team. An attacking goal-scoring midfielder would get... I think he gets 20 a season because he's got such great instincts. Um, i take Kovacic because I think he's an absolutely magnificent midfielder and he's only in his prime years. I think you've got four or five great years left in him. Um, I would take Kante as a short-term thing. I, you just have to because he's Kante. Um, I'd take Conor Gallagher. I would. I'd take Conor Gallagher. They don't have him at the moment, but he's out on loan. Another one like Gallagher. I'd take Broya. I'd, I'd take the risk on Broya. I think he could be something. Uh, Levi Colwell, the centre-back on loan at Huddersfield. Definitely take him. And i take Reese James but not as a right back. I'd take Reese James and play him in midfield. 
Reese James on the right of that midfield, overlapping as Trent underlaps. That could be special. That could be really special. So to rank them, I'd go Havertz 1, Kovacic 2, Mount 3, James 4, Gallagher 5, Colwell 6, Broya 7, and I would take a risk on Callum Hudson-Odoi. They're the eight players I'd take. I'd take any of them, but I'd have them in that order. And that's me. That is me for today, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope I've answered everyone's question. If I haven't, I do apologize. But enjoy the games tonight. I'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.